0: Good morning, folks. Glad you all are here. Hey, if you don't uh, have your Bible out already, now would be a great time to do that. And uh, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we'll begin in uh, part 4 of our sermon series uh, covering the New Covenant. This morning we'll discover the preeminence, the preeminence of the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, So I trust that you're there, close to it. And uh, we'll dive right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into our sermon. Father, we ask that you would now be among us. We ask that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to the glory of who your son is, and I pray that we would understand his gospel more fully, and that we would understand what it means to be to be both ministers of this new covenant and to be engaged in ministry uh, in this new covenant. And so we pray that you would uh, help us to see that in our own hearts, and our own lives, and that, Lord, you would transform us uh, ever into ever-increasing glory as we ponder and look upon your face. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we're sort of familiar, I think, in our culture with the idea of letters of recommendations. And so, I don't know if you've ever been asked to write a letter of recommendation for someone. I know that I have had the great privilege of of writing many letters of recommendation uh, in my day, uh, serving here as a a pastor at this church, and it's, it's a privilege to do so. However, sometimes writing a letter of recommendation can sort of be, well, a bit challenging if, just to put it nicely, the person doesn't have many admirable qualities. In other words, you don't want to lie, right? You want to say the truth but if for some reason, eh, it's kind of hard for you to to recommend them, well, it it becomes challenging. However, I've discovered, not by personal experience, by the way, I've just heard, just saying that, right, that uh, you can hop on the internet and there are ways to sort of get around this. For example, uh, if you were uh, talking of maybe a dishonest person, you may write something like, well, um, she is an unbelievable worker. Get it? (laughs) Unbelievable. So for the chronically absent person, they never show up, you might say something like, well, a man like him is hard to find. And of course, for one who is unproductive at work, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. Get it? No person at all? Okay. So, the point is, is that we're familiar with this idea, right? Letters of recommendation. You don't know the person, but I know the person, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a letter, uh, commending them to you. Well, uh, this is actually not something uh, that's new. In fact, letters of recommendation, if you will, uh, go all the way back to the ancient world and they fit into the context of what we see happening in our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So today we're going to begin sort of a two-part uh, a sermon series within the sermon series exploring the preeminence of the new covenant, the preeminence of the new covenant to the old covenant. And, and so we have looked at the panorama of the new covenant. We have looked at the purpose of the new covenant. And then last week, we looked at some of the provisions of the new covenant. Uh, This week and next, we will look at the preeminence of the new covenant. That is its superiority to the old covenant. Now, as we transition... From the Old Testament into our New Testament, I hope you're there with me in 2 Corinthians 3, we have to go uh, to two books of the Bible if we want to discover the preeminence of the New Covenant. The first, of course, is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's just one chapter, but in this concise chapter, we see Paul arguing and comparing and contrasting the Old and the New Covenant. Uh, The other book of the Bible, which will be in next week, which also speaks to the preeminence of the New Covenant, is the entire book of Hebrews. So in my mind, 2 Corinthians 3 is sort of like the appetizer on the subject, if you will. It just sort of whets your appetite. It it, it tastes good, but it's just a few bites on this subject of the preeminence of the New Covenant. If you want uh, a full meal, so to speak, you have to jump uh, headlong into the book of Hebrews, and we'll do that next week. In fact, Dr. Dr. John MacArthur uh, agrees when he writes this. He says, 2 Corinthians 3 is a condensed summary of the New Covenant distinctives, the most complete exposition of which is found in the book of Hebrews. I'm glad he agrees with me, right? As Paul does here, the writer of Hebrews makes clear the superiority of the New Covenant. And so what we're going to be looking at is answering this question, why is the New Covenant that Christ initiated, that the church functions under, why is it so much better... ...than the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel? We'll we'll explore that question in two parts, starting today uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let me, uh, sort of, before we jump into the text, let me sort of give you the context. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3... Paul writes about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And the reason he's doing that, the reason he does that, is because he is defending both himself as an apostle of Christ and his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians because there had been some false teachers who had crept in to the Corinthian church. Most likely they were Jewish false teachers teachers and they had arrived in Corinth and they had arrived likely with these uh, these letters of recommendation from, well, we don't know whom in, in particular, but maybe even from the uh, the Jerusalem church saying, hey, these are real apostles. These are real teachers. You can trust these guys. These letters most likely were fake. So these these false teachers had arrived into the church and they had Uh, They had begun to cast doubt on Paul and his person and his ministry to the Corinthians. They had questioned his authority, putting Paul in in a rather awkward position. See, they put him in the position of having to defend himself and defend his ministry, uh, to, to, amongst those that he himself had been used of God to bring to Christ. And so Paul had, had stayed with uh, these, these Corinthians. He, he knows them, but now they're questioning him. And so that's essentially what the whole book of 2 Corinthians is all about. And in chapter 3, we see, we see that Paul is going to hone in on the superiority of his ministry uh, to that of the false teachers. A new covenant ministry. And so the section essentially breaks up into two pretty easy uh, uh, sections. Uh, verses 1 through 6, we, we, we see new covenant ministers. In other words, Paul is going to speak of himself. And this is an important point. Paul's going to speak both of himself and of every single Christian as ministers or servants of this new covenant. And so we see New Covenant Ministers in one through six. The second half, essentially essentially six through eleven, Paul shifts gears a little bit uh, from New Covenant ministers to New Covenant Ministry. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Let's take a look, starting uh, in verse 1. But before we do that, actually go back one chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, just to uh, lead us into chapter 1. In the previous verse, Paul essentially begins to defend his ministry among the Corinthians. And so he makes the statement in chapter 2, verse 17, just one verse prior. He says, unlike so many, in other words, these false teachers that, that had come in, unlike so many... We do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And so on the heels of this statement, this defense of his ministry that he's just made, he asks in chapter 3, verse 1... Two questions uh, for the Corinthians to ponder. The first question reads like this: He says, "Are are we beginning to commend ourselves again?" And this is sort of the sense that, that he's asking. In other words, do we really have to, to prove our, our integrity to you? I mean, do we really have to demonstrate that we are uh, true apostles of Christ? Is it necessary, O Corinthians, for me to start uh, to, to build my reputation among you all over again? Well, well of course, the, the, the implied answer is no, right? No, do we have to start over again? Do we need to commend ourselves over to you again? And then follows a second question. Paul says, no, I don't don't have to do that. Or do we need, he writes, like some people, notice the reference to these false teachers that had crept into the church, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And so Paul is addressing uh, this claim apparently made by the false teachers. Hey, we've got these letters of recommendation. We are authentic. Uh, and Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't have a letter like that. And I don't really need a letter like that. You know me. Oh, but, but you need a letter, Paul. And so he sort of responds then in verses 2 and 3, uh, to that claim that he needs this sort of letter of commendation. He says, you, you, you really want a letter? Do you want a letter to demonstrate that I'm, I'm an authentic apostle? Do you want a letter to demonstrate my ministry towards you? Okay, I've got a letter for you, starting in verse 2. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul essentially says, no, I don't, I don't need to provide this letter. You don't need this letter from me, right? I don't need to bring a letter committing my ministry because because Why? They themselves are that letter. You could say the only testimony that, that, that they needed to verify his ministry amongst them was the reality of their own salvation, was the reality that they were growing in Christ. You yourselves are our letter. And so he points to the lives of the Christians there in Corinth, and he says that's, that's all the letter you need. Look at what Christ has done in you. That's all the evidence you need. But then what he he does, starting in verse 3, is he begins to describe this letter that every Christian is. So I want to point out a few things as we take a look at this verse. Number one, notice where the letter is written. Beginning of verse 2, he says, You yourselves are our letter written on our what, church? on our hearts, right? Written on our hearts. And he refers to himself, and he refers to the apostolic uh, ministers of the gospel that accompanied him. He says, "You, you are our letter, and you are written on our hearts. And so there is a sense in which Paul says, you guys, you're like a letter written on our hearts. What is he communicating to them? He's essentially saying, I love you, right? I care for you. Uh, I have invested in you. You are written on our hearts. We we have affection for you. We really care for you, not like these false teachers. And so we see where the, the letter is written, so to speak, on Paul's heart. But notice, number two, notice who reads this letter. The Corinthians are a letter, right? But who reads that letter? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by whom, church? By everyone, right? Known and read by everyone. In a sense, uh, this letter of the Corinthians' lives, it wasn't private correspondence, right? It wasn't just for two or three people. No, this was for public correspondence consumption, right? The lives, the, transforms, the transformed lives of the Corinthians, Paul says it's, it's like a letter. It's like a letter that Christ has written, and it's for everyone to see. I don't, I've heard it uh, said once, and I don't recall by whom, but this particular pastor said something like this. He said, you know, you might be the only Bible that someone would ever read. And there's a sense in which Paul is communicating that, that, that Christians are a letter written for all to see. Notice, number three, notice who wrote this letter. We might think that Paul, to some, in some sense, is the author of this letter, but that's not what he says, is it? Take a look at verse three. He says, you show that you are a letter from whom? from Christ, right? And so Paul is not the ultimate letter of the salvation and the the lives of these Corinthians. No, he says that you show you're a letter and that Christ is the author of that letter. However, he adds an interesting phrase. He says, the result of our ministry. And so while While Jesus is the author of salvation, certainly the one who saves and the one who sanctifies, we shouldn't miss this fact that the salvation and the growth of this church is said to be by Paul the result of our ministry. In other words, Paul sees himself as an instrument in the hands of Jesus to write this incredible letter on the lives of those that he ministers so we've seen, uh, number one, who, who, where the letter is written and who reads it and, and who wrote it. But notice number four, what the letter is written with. I'll begin in verse 3 again. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. And then notice what the letter is written with. Paul goes on and he says, Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. See, the letters that these false teachers had provided uh, for the Corinthians uh, certainly were letters written with ink. And so Paul makes a contrast. He says, no, no, you guys are my letter and, and you weren't written on with by ink and, and pen and quill, right? That's not uh, what, what the substance of, of this letter is written on. No, written not with ink, but with whom church? With the spirit of the living God, right? While the letters that the false teachers offered uh, were penned with ink, Paul essentially says, listen, you Corinthians, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, in his ministry, in your salvation, and in your sanctification, he is the one, uh, in a sense, who is doing the writing, right? Written not with ink, but with the Holy Spirit. Spirit and then number five. Notice what the letter is written on. Well, in a sense, Paul could say, "Hey, uh, the the letter is written on our hearts." But now, as he's d- describing this this letter, this this Corinthian letter, this new covenant letter, notice he says that this letter is not written on. And notice the contrast. It's very it's very interesting. He says not not written on tablets of stone. Now let's just pause there. If you've been with us uh, through this this sermon series, hopefully this sort of sort of ringing some bells because um, what was written on tablets of stone? Remember back in the Old Testament, Moses right? He went up on the mountain and, and and what? God wrote the Ten Commandments on what? On tablets of stone. And so Paul is is using this imagery. He's bringing in this new covenant, old covenant imagery. He says, no, no, it wasn't written on tablets of stone. In other words. Their salvation and their sanctification was, was not a result of old covenant ministry, but with what? On tablets of the human heart. Does that ring a bell? If you were with us last week, hopefully it does, because we saw in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, that one of the key provisions of the new covenant is that God will write His law, what? On our minds and on our hearts, right? And so Paul is using this imagery, right? Not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Dr. Constable says it this way as he's summing up this section of contrast. He says, Paul's ministry and the ministry of all Christians, the ministry of all Christians consists of being the instruments through whom Christ writes the message of regeneration on the lives of those who believe the gospel. He does this by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, here in these opening verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, he says, you are our letters, right? All the evidence that you need to demonstrate my authentic apostolic ministry is found in this New Covenant letter which you are. Before we move to the next section, I think there are some rather helpful applicational lessons that we can learn. And I think we can simply break it up into into two categories. Um, in these verses, we learn what uh, ministers of the new covenant are not, and we learn what ministers of the new covenant are, right? What they are not, and what they are. So let's begin with what new covenant ministers are not. And friends, I must... I must say, because it's worth saying, that when we use the word minister here, as Paul uses it, he's not talking about me alone, right? Not vocational ministers. Every Christian is a minister, a servant to others in the new covenant. So, so what then are we to be like? What are we not to be like? Well, number one, new covenant ministers are not scandalous. We are not to be scandalous in the way that we interact with others. Take a look, if you will, have your Bibles open, back at chapter 2, verse 17. Paul again says, Unlike so many, obviously contrasting himself with these false teachers, he says, We do not peddle the word of God for profit. This word peddle in the New Testament refers uh, to a con artist. A con artist, essentially, Paul says, New Covenant ministers aren't spiritual con artists. They're not people. Uh, we don't trick people, essentially, into purchasing cheap imitations of the true gospel. Friends, are there spiritual con artists out there today? Yes, there are. Beware of them. Paul says, that's what not Christians are not to be. We don't dupe people, right? It's not the old bait and switch. We don't peddle the Word of God. We're not motivated simply for financial reward or gain. No, we're not scandalous. But number two, we're not self-commending. We're not self-commending. Paul makes that argument in, in, in verse one. We don't have to commend ourselves to you again. And I think he's, I think he's, speaking to the fact that these false teachers were highly self-commending. In other words, they would come into a, a church, they would come into a city and say, look at us, look how good we are, look at all of our qualifications. You should trust us, right? They, they commended themselves. And Paul says, New Covenant ministers aren't self-commending. In other words, it's not about us. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about self-seeking as we seek to serve others. Um, think of it this way. Good servants of Jesus essentially want to talk more about Jesus than they do themselves, right? It's more about him and less about us. I've heard it said uh, throughout my years of playing sports, which is many years ago now. Uh, but the coach would say something like this. He would, say, he would say, boys or men, depending on how old we are, uh, you need to play for the, for the name that's on the front of your jersey, not for the name that's on the what? On the back of the jersey, right? And what was their point? Well, the point was, well, don't care about your own stats, your own pursuits, right? Be a good team player. And in a sense, that's what Paul is saying. New covenant ministers are not self-commending. They are Christ-commending. Well, we've seen a couple things that new covenant ministers are. Let's take a look at what new covenant ministers uh, are to be. Uh, Three things. Number one, we are to be sincere, we are to be sincere. Did you pick up on that, right? He says that in in chapter 2, verse 17, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, with sincerity. It's an interesting Greek word. It's basically a combination of two different words sandwiched together, and the two words in Greek, one essentially refers to uh, sunlight, the word for sunlight, And the other is the word to judge. And so you have the idea of judging something in the sunlight. Now, why would you do that? Why would you bring something into the sunlight in order to judge it? Well, the idea is that to fully inspect it, to see what's really there, you need to bring it into the light. And here Paul essentially says that's, that's what Christians are to be. We speak before God and before men with sincerity. Our, our, our life and our, and our message stands up to the close scrutiny of the Son. And so we're to be sincere in our ministry. We're, we're secondly supposed to be sensitive. Now, there's a sensitivity there. We, we've already made this point, but, but, but Paul says to these Corinthians, you guys are like letters written on my heart. In other words, I genuinely care about you friends we need to ask ourselves those that we are seeking to serve in the name of christ do we actually care about them i mean do we genuinely care about these people do we care about their needs about their wants their desires their spiritual needs their family life do we care about them paul says that new covenant ministers are are not only sincere but but we are sensitive and then third that our ministry is to be supernatural Our ministry is to be supernatural. Because in verses 4 and 5, Paul continues and he writes this. He says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Friends, that's a, a wonderful admission from this powerful apostle. He essentially says that, that I'm confident in the Lord, and I, I'm confident in what he's doing, but, but where does his confidence lie? Does it lie in him, church? Shake your head, no. It does not lie in himself. No. He says, My competence and my confidence comes from God. Friends, there's a sense in which our ministry of the gospel is rooted in this humility this dependency that we have, that if anything supernatural is going to happen in the life of this child, or or the life of our neighbor, or the life of a family member, or the life of a friend, if there's anything of eternal significance that is going to happen, it's going to happen because God, the Holy Spirit, will work through our words and our works to accomplish a supernatural transformation. And so we've seen in verses 1 through 6a, Paul speak about New Covenant ministers. But then he shifts gears a bit and he begins to talk about not the minister, him or herself, but the nature of their ministry. And so we see at the tail end of 6 and on through verse 11, Paul highlights the distinctives of New Covenant ministry and he contrasts them with the Old Covenant. He continues in verse 6. Let's read in the text. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. So what was hinted at back in verse 3, the idea of, well, it's not written on tablets of stone, but on the human heart, Paul brings up this new covenant imagery. What was hinted back in in verse 3 is now made explicit. Paul says, we serve under the new covenant. And so what follows then are four qualities. Four distinctives, if you will, of new covenant ministry. And the first is in verse 6. And it is that the new covenant gives life. The new covenant gives life. Read verse 6 with me. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, referring to the old covenant or the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter does what, church? The letter what? Kills. For the letter kills, but in great contrast, the Spirit gives life. And so Paul here begins by contrasting the results of these two different covenants, in particular in relation to mankind. What are the results of these two covenants as it relates to people? What's the result of the old covenant as it relates to people? What's the result of the new covenant as it relates to people? Well, well, first, The result of the Old Covenant is that it kills. He says the letter or the law kills. And so we need to ask ourselves, how does it kill? What is he talking about, right? I think Paul means that, that the Old Covenant, the letter, kills us, number one, by showing us how impossible it is for us to measure up to it. Have you ever read through the Bible... And said, wow, there's a lot here. I mean, this is, this is hard. I, I can't do this. I don't measure up. Well, well, that's what it should do, right? The letter kills us in that it shows us the glory of God and the goodness of God and what it looks like to follow Him. And it shows us I don't measure up to that. But not only does it kill us in that sense, but it kills us by pronouncing an eternal death sentence for those who do. In other words, not only does the law show us, boy, I don't measure up, but the law pronounces its sentence of eternal death upon us. And so in that sense, the old covenant kills. But in great contrast, and we're so grateful for this, Paul asserts that while the letter kills, the Spirit gives what, church? The Spirit gives life, right? It is life-giving. And so how does the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian give give life. Well, I think the Spirit, number one, gives life in that, well, when we become Christians, it it convicts us of sin. It it helps us understand our need for the grace of God. It leads us to repentance and faith in Jesus, the one who, who paid the penalty for our breaking of God's Law, But not only that, the Holy Spirit gives life by what well, we saw it in part last week. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, right? He writes the law of God on our hearts and on our minds. He gives us a desire to obey and a new power to obey God. Friends, the law could do neither of those. In fact, there's a little poem that speaks to that and it goes like this. It says, To run and work The law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so there's the first distinctive of the new covenant. It gives, it produces life through the Holy Spirit. But there's a second. Not only does the new covenant give life, but but number two, the new covenant, Paul, Paul argues, comes with a greater glory. Notice seven and eight. Now, if the ministry that b- brought death was engraved in, in letters of stone, if it came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because because its glory, uh, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So Paul contrasts the results of these two covenants, not as it relates to man necessarily, but as it relates to God. See, both Paul argues, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, display and demonstrates the glory of God. But he simply says, the New does so more so than the Old. And to illustrate here in these verses the law's glory, he points to a specific hint, doesn't he? He says, remember when Moses went up to the mountain and he received the law, and he came back down and his face was doing what? His face shone With the glory of God in Exodus thirty four. He essentially argues that, that if that ministry which brought death, if that ministry with which brought death revealed God's glory, how much more will the covenant of the Spirit that brings life give God even more glory? And so the new covenant, in a sense, gives life. It, it comes with a greater glory. But it also provides, in verse 9, it brings righteousness. Notice the next contrast there in verse 9. He says, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, the old covenant, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And so here we see God's purposes for these two covenants. While the former condemns. The latter declares righteous. While, while, while the former says guilty. The other declares us to be innocent. Under, under the first we're condemned. Because we cannot uphold God's standards. But under, this, under the latter we are. Uh, as the Bible says justified. We are declared righteous if you will. Because Christ upheld that standard for us. And I think just a couple chapters later, Paul fleshes this righteousness out for us in greater detail. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes this, God made him, referring to Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul contrast the old covenant. It it kills while the new gives life. The old, uh, it has some glory, but the new has a greater glory. The new covenant brings us righteousness, this alien righteousness as we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. But then there's a fourth and a final distinctive, and it is this. The new covenant, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, is permanent. It is permanent. Verse 10, For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with uh, with the surpassing glory. In other words, the greater glory of the new covenant is so much more glorious that it sort of makes the the glory of the old just sort of nothing, right? For for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, notice verse 11. If what was Transitory came with glory. How much, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? See in verse eleven, the final contrast here is between the duration of the covenants. Both here and in verse thirteen, Paul compares the the face of Moses. Remember in the Old Testament, his his face shone with the glory of God, and yet Paul refers to a veil that he put on his face because why? Well, it was fading. Away. And, and Paul says this is a picture of the fading glory and the fading duration of the old covenant. What is implied here in this verse, I think, is made rather explicit elsewhere in places like Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, where the writer of Hebrews says, By calling this covenant new, the new covenant, he has made the first one, the old covenant, obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated is will soon disappear and so the the author of hebrews uh confirms what paul is writing here that the old covenant well it is transitory and that the new covenant it is it is lasting you know i think uh i think what is true of the old covenant is is true of technology today and and this is what i mean Uh, what is obsolete and outdated will soon do what It'll disappear. I came across a list of uh, 50 outdated technologies this week. If you're interested in learning about that, Google it. You can find it's rather interesting. What was sad is that I was familiar with about every, every, every one of those pieces of technology. I'm like, oh, that's outdated now? I didn't know that was outdated. I still have VHS tapes. You guys still have VHS? I still have VHS. Floppy disks were on the list. Cassette tapes were on the list. Pagers were on the list. You young folks are like, what is he talking about? They have no idea what I'm referring to. Ask your mom and dad, right? Old technology becomes obsolete, and then it does what? It disappears, right? In fact, I, I saw a four-minute video of, of two parents, and they sat in front of their two teenage sons a rotary phone. Again, if you don't know what it is, ask your mom and dad. A rotary phone, and they videotaped it, and they said, you have four minutes to dial one number on the rotary phone. You think they could do it? They absolutely had no idea how to do that. It was kind of funny. Uh, those of us like me, you've used it, you know how to do it, right? It, it is obsolete and outdated. I think that's, the, that's the, the essence of what Paul is saying here is that the new covenant is lasting. It is permanent. So we're going to wrap up here and then I'm going to invite Noah to come and share with us just for a moment. But in closing, I want to share a story that sort of, I think, encapsulates well this idea of New Covenant ministers and ministry. And it's a story of, well, America's evangelist, Billy Graham. Uh, Many years ago, back in 1955, he was scheduled to preach uh, at the prestigious Cambridge University across the pond, right? And and he wrote to a friend prior to going about how hesitant he was uh, to preach to these academic elites At Cambridge, and he he wrote this to a friend. He said, I am scared stiff about preaching at Cambridge. I don't know if I have felt, ever felt more inadequate and totally unprepared for a mission. And so as the story goes, the week came, and uh, by all accounts, he was not his normal self. In fact, the first three sermons that he gave were rather um, academic in nature. He tried to impress the students with his knowledge, and well, there was sort of minimal results. However, uh, come Wednesday, he was like, this is not working. I'm going to scrap this. And so he threw away his notes and he preached as he, well, as he always did, a simple gospel message with enthusiasm and power. And, of course, the results were dramatically different. In fact, one student who attended uh, that week of sermons wrote this about, about that change in Billy Graham. He said, when Billy tried somewhat unsuccessfully to be academic, his preaching lacked power. But when he accepted the apparent foolishness of the message of Christ crucified and preached it with simplicity and integrity, he said the power of God's Spirit was manifestly at work changing the lives of many students. And friends, I can't think of a better story to sum up this this sermon for us. New Covenant Ministers and New Covenant Ministry. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask Noah to come share with us just for a moment. Father, we ask that you would uh, teach us through your word what it means as Christians to be ministers of this new covenant. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that, that we, in a sense, because we're Christians, that Christ has, has written uh, his letter on our lives. And it's, it is known and read by all. And we have the great privilege then of participating in uh, sharing this gospel and being effective ministers of this new covenant. And we're grateful, Father, for the covenant that you have provided for us through the the life and death and resurrection of your Son. We're so grateful that this covenant provides us with life uh, rather than death, that it has a greater glory, that it brings uh, a, a a declaration of righteousness rather than a declaration of condemnation, and that it is everlasting and permanent. We ask these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks, Noah. Why don't you come on?